Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to episode 139 of Wait, What? A Comics and Pop Culture Peaceling. Today, Graham McMillan joins me to have recovered memories of the last episode from last week, and also to discuss the joy of comics, a beast that is blessedly different from both the joy of sex and the joy of cooking. While the actual numbers of recent comics discussed is very light, the level of meandering critical discourse is high, covering artists like Mike Golden, Paul Pope, Neil Adams, Dan Jurgens, Jim Steranko, Chris Ware, Al Milgram, and topics like reading comics in a foreign language, The Night of the Doctor, Misfits, Brendan McCarthy, Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and much more in this episode that runs just a hair over 90 minutes. Appallingly brief show notes can be found over at SavageCritic.com, and we always welcome your comments and questions at WaitWhatPodcast at gmail.com. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Hello? Graham McMillan, hello! Oh, Jeff Lester, it worked! Technology worked! I really, for a second, thought that wasn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What What happened? Because I did the restarting of the internet, um, and then and like I opened Skype up, and I saw you called, and then your little like you know Jeff is calling thing came up, mm-hmm. but there was no sound at all, hmm. and I was like, oh, it's it's gone wrong already. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, just crap. But you sound really good. How do I sound? Okay, you you sound spectacular. You sound <laughs> handsome, self-assured, Jeff. You sound like a confident man who knows what he wants and knows how to get it. Lovely, lovely. Wait a minute. Is that is that is that song lyrics? Is that confident man who knows how to get it? I don't, know. I don't think so. Is it? I, I don't know. It's it, it, maybe it was your intonation. I'm like it's either a commercial or it's like a Tom Jones uh, lyric. Anyway, I was asking <laughs> I love, more about I the internet, the but yeah, I thank you. I thank you for. Um, I, I thank you for the compliments. My 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 beaten self-image is is healing a little bit now so um yeah but no the internet sounds okay to you as far as uh, it's, you it's yeah it okay. sounds fine well this is great i mean because this is the you know this is the new the new thing so let's let's my hope is is that it'll sound really okay for yeah, you yeah you really basically good. let's see how long before it goes wrong because it will <laughs> It probably will. It probably totally will. So, Graham McMillan, my goodness, here we are talking again, but this time it's actually going to, like, not get destroyed, or so we hope. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> don't, don't even say that as a joke. I know, I know. What are you doing? I know, just tempting fate. No, I was like, this is great. Nothing's going to happen. And I'm like, oh, wait, I mean, unless it does happen, you know. Which, yeah, exactly, because so, yeah. last time I recorded fight, it was that it disappeared after oh, recording. Fucking hell, it really was. It was a... It was the, I, I really hate to rub everyone's nose in it, but it really was kind of a genius episode, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I've actually been thinking about what we said, and I, I have kind of come to this the belief that it might have been for the best. <laughs> the internet was trying to save us, is what you're trying to say, yeah. or my hard drive was like, I'll take a bullet for these guys. Yeah, exactly, because if everything they say gets out... Everyone will hate them for different <laughs> reasons, but everyone will hate them. It's, you know, it's true, at least a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I don't think, like, <laughs> I, I just, I'm sort of, I'm very... Think, think, think about what we ultimately came out against last week. <sighs> well, yeah. Neil Gaiman and... Not almost all together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fantagraphics, Kickstartering, Kickstartering in general. You know, that's the one that actually kills me because I feel like we finally put our fingers on what was wrong with Kickstarter, and of course now I can't remember it. Yeah, I can't remember either, <laughs> but we had a great conversation about it. <laughs> 
No, it's uh, true. It's true. Yeah, no, that, but that's just it. Like, we had all these conversations. Uh, we talked about DC going to Burbank. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had all these conversations at some point. We would have just upset, I think, every single person who was Pretty much. We hit every spectrum. Every spectrum. And not not in that, oh, look at us, we're like... Um, trying to wind you up kind of way but very much in that like when we talked about Matt Fraction and people were like I'm going to hit you with a brick if you keep talking about this guy this way kind of thing you know what I yeah. mean yeah yeah exactly yeah. I, yeah. I I think that it would have been like it would have been an episode that lots of people would have had many comments on <laughs> the comments would have been you guys have to stop yeah exactly or kill them kill them now um, whereas by contrast, like, and, and don't worry, people will either recover that at some day and let you hear the glory of it, or we'll just pretend it never happened and is completely unrecoverable. But I'm, I could not begin to recreate it, uh, now if we tried, which is both satisfying and completely sad. We're going to have to talk about whole new things this time around, which is great because I have absolutely no idea what to talk about. Oh, awesome. Uh, have you, let's start with this, Jeff, because I know my answer to this. Have you read any comics this week? No. <laughs> Good job. You've read nothing in the last week. I, I've, I've read a little bit. I, what I ended up reading in the last week, because, uh, you know, there was techpocalypse happening, there was work, plus there was all this crazy, like, we had electricians ripping up the walls on Monday, we had the new cable guy putting in the cable thing, on Wednesday, I was at work Tuesday. So uh, I will say that I read um, and quite enjoyed, I read like another 10 to 15 pages of Four Color Fear, which is not much at all. Uh, and I read, I want to say 20 to 24 pages of Torpedo Volume 1. You know the um, oh yeah the, the the crime story exactly crime. exactly I it, it's one of those like I've always thought Bernays work is gorgeous um, oh yeah I'm got him up to like sixty pages in it or something wait wait it's, but does torpedo not start off with Toth or am I completely imagining no that? no you're absolutely right so so the first I won't I don't know twenty pages or so is Toth and gloriously so. Um, there is no other way to be Toth. Yeah, that is. If, if Alex Toth is drawing you, you mm -hmm. will. Be, that's not true. With the exception of one story that I have seen, if Alex Toth is drawing you, you will be beautiful to look at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The one story being when he was inked by Terry Austin for a DC Comics Presents annual, and if ever there was a combination that did not go together, Aww. it's Terry Austin and <laughs> Alex Toth. Yeah, what a shame! What a shame! I can sort of see that not being a good mix in a way, but uh, honestly, I don't think Austin would be a great improvement on Bernay either. One of the things that was really fun about looking at the torpedo stories is that they're done, for the most part, they're done on a real standard six-panel grid. Um, and uh, how do I put it? I guess it's just each one, it's, it's one of the few books that's lovely enough. I almost never do this. I mean, literally never do this. But I put it in guided view just so that I could look at each panel kind of close up, you know? And both wait, 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 light rewind. It's on Comixology? I did not know that. Yeah, in fact, I don't know if it, I think it's probably over, but you know the uh, IDW, uh, like, sort of lost treasure sale that they had last week? Yeah, which which is definitely over. Okay. Yeah, they had all four volumes of Torpedo in there for, 
I don't five dollars a pop, I think. Five oh, five a piece, oh, yeah. Oh that's so sad that I discovered that now. Yeah, sorry about that, man. So I picked up the first two. Um you know another weird thing, by the way, is is that uh Top Shelf is having their Super Mega Mondo sale, as I'm sure you know. Yes. Um but the books aren't consistent across all platforms. I don't know. Oh really? Yeah, so like um, cause basically after the, the way that you talked about it, I, once I saw this sale, I'm like, okay, I've got to get the From Hell Companion. I've got to get it to be perfect for this new iPad. It'll be great. And I jumped on Comixology and it wasn't listed. In fact, if you search on From Hell Companion, Comixology's search engine is weird. Let's put it this way. I searched on literally the terms From Hell Companion and I got two issues of Crossed. And I'm like... Because Crossed is like it's come from hell. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. You know, and I don't know. And there's a paid companion. Like, if you've got a paid companion from hell, I don't know. If you search on From Hell, you get From Hell. But it's amazing to me that From Hell Companion does... I would understand if it shows up with From Hell and Two Issues of Crossed or whatever. Yeah. But it doesn't. Like, From Hell Wait, does is, not is pop the... up in a From Hell Companion search. Is the From Hell Companion even on Comixology? Because I can't find it on the website. Well, see, and that's the problem. From Hell Companion is not on Comixology, so it's not on sale. But if you buy it on the Kindle, you can buy it on the Kindle for $3.99. Huh. Yeah. So. Indeed. Huh. Indeed. Right. So, so yeah, that was kind of a, a weirdo thing. Anyway. Um, so starting with the Toth and then with the Bernay, uh, actually with Toth, I would look at the full pages, but then with the Bernay stuff, I really did just like go with panel view on the iPad and it was glorious. And it was really interesting to me sort of how the line looks kind of much scratchier at that level of detail. I mean, of course, I mean, that sounds really stupid, but when you, when you zoom out and you see the whole page, just the the there's so many solid blacks there it seems like a much more sort of soother you know more uh subtle sensual sort of experience you know yeah all of which is to say i can see why actually terry austin would be a tough choice for toth because toth really achieves so much of his fluidity through balance as opposed to i guess what we think of is uh, you know I, I, I don't know maybe a more supple line you know what I mean? Well, what's interesting for me is, for me, Toad's line is very fluid. Mm-hmm. It's, it's solid lines, it's unbroken lines, mm-hmm. and Terry Austin cannot do an unbroken line. Oh, maybe that's what it is. Okay, right. Yeah, Terry yeah, Austin, yeah. for me, is very much like, you know, hey, what if I just do, like, seven lines? Right. Like, it's someone's arm. What if I just do, like, multiple lines for this arm, <laughs> all tapering off? To show how great I am thinking. I think Terry, like, I, Terry Austin is, is... Dude, you do not like Terry Austin. I really don't like Terry Austin. Holy I fuck, Austin. I love Terry Austin. Holy yeah, shit, I, I, I didn't really catch people, on. You were so diplomatic about do. it. Most people do. Yeah. Most people do. Uh, Terry Austin, I find a really... Terry Austin is an inker who, for me who only works with a really good colorist. Oh, interesting. Because Terry Austin is so disruptive to the line for me. That like when you see stuff in black and white, for example, it really stands out that he's got this really weirdly uneven line, and he loves doing multiple strokes, where one flowing stroke would be preferable for me. Well, it is. It's one of those things where I mean, you know, the cartoonists like the jazz dudes. You know, they sort of get toward that idea of just expression in one in one line, like less is more. But I don't know. I still there's a certain more is more sort of 
thing that I love, and I mean, I... Oh, uh, but Jeff, that's that's how you end up with Jim Lee and, you know, Rob Liefeld. Yeah, I, sure, Graham, just sort of the same way that you and I talking leads to cannibalism. You know what I mean? <laughs> to be fair, maybe it will. Well, I... Dude, <laughs> the chances are really good, if you think about it. But, I mean, it, it's... Yeah. I don't know. In any event, so you're saying like like Uncanny X Men, you would have like jo- John Byrne like inked by Joseph Rubenstein over like Terry. Uh, <laughs> no, because I don't like Joseph Rubenstein either. Um, wow, I don't like I, Rubenstein I, either. I think he's kind of <laughs> okay. I, I really thought for a second you're going to be like not Rubenstein as well. No. Um, yeah. No. Here's the thing for Uncanny X Men, it sort of weirdly works. Because everything's uh, almost too much in that book. Yeah, because because there's so much Uncanny X Men, or rather the Burn Austin Uncanny X Men, right. uh, is a disco book for me. Mm-hmm. Like, and so there's a lot of visual noise, and there's a lot of um, weightlessness, and and sort. Of, I want to say pop, but that's so broad a term to be meaningless. Um, yeah, it, it it's not like disco. It, um, no, no, no. But that that's what I mean. Like it's it's. It really is like it's very much of its time. No, no, no. I get it. And actually, disco is not a bad comparison because it's the weightlessness that comes from everything having too much weight. You know what I mean? But also, also like a surface gloss. That right, the surface br- gloss. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of cracks in the structure. Right, so. right. It's it's like with disco where every everything's pushed to the front. There's nothing in the background. It's all pushed to the foreground. And there's too uh, much of it, right? Yeah, and so that works for me in mm-hmm. that. But like everything, because, you know, Austin Eastis is like, it's Terry Austin. He's superstar inker. And almost every time I see him ink someone, I'm like, oh, God, that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's really terrible. Could you not have gotten someone else to ink it? Oh, please, God. I, I honestly can't think of, outside of Uncanny X-Men, any Austin ink job where I've not been like, oh. Wow. Wow. I'm, 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 I'm fascinated. Who knew that You're aghast. I'm a, I, I don't want to say aghast, because, I mean, I'm sort of like, eh, you know what I mean? Like, once you turn over, once you get past a certain age, it's hard to be aghast about anything in comics, really, especially in opinion, <laughs> you know. But but just generally, it was like ah, Mort Weisinger was like sodomizing the people who worked under him. <sighs> Hardly a surprise, you know. It's just it doesn't it doesn't it has there's no I'm I'm unshockable in that. It, but it, I, I wish that were true. But I mean, certainly as far as opinions go, it's like ah, you don't like Terry Austin, I totally get it, you know. I mean. It, uh... I don't know. It's just it's one of those things. It's I, I, I'm going to jump like I'm going to stay on art, but I'm going to jump to something else to ask you whether you've ever noticed this. Uh, I've been reading the early Mike Waringo issues of Flash oh. on Comicsology, hmm. um, and I've noticed this thing. Like, he, first of all, he becomes Mike Waringo that we know and love really quickly, like within his first four issues, uh-huh. which is kind of amazing to me. Yeah. Like he, he he starts off and he's so almost there, but he's not there. But like by the fourth issue, you're like, oh holy shit, he's totally got his style down entirely, which is kind of amazing. But um, at the start, when he's not quite there, he looks really, really like Chris Sprouse. I believe it. Right. Yeah. And it, but reading that, it also made me realize Chris Sprouse is really like parts of Mike Golden. Yeah. Yeah. And I Mike can see that. also sort of branched off into our Adams. Which then branched off into the image guys. Is my golden the most influential comic artist of that era? Uh, wait, Be- it- because he had those like he had those jewel branches. 
Uh, wait, Golden is? Yeah, is he? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, no. I, I actually, um, weirdly enough, there, this was a theory that someone else had put forward. I, I hate not to, meaning to burst your bubble. I don't think anyone tracked No, no, no. I, back I, to that shows that I'm not insane. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're definitely not. No, someone was actually talking about um, Golden, and weirdly, I want to say that it was somebody talking about Golden's influence on somebody like Liefeld. Um, yeah, but, but you can see the influence from Liefeld. I mean, it goes through our atoms. Like, you have to go Golden, Adams. I don't think so. I think Liefeld, I think a lot of those guys hop over Adams and go straight to Golden. You know? Really, for for me, you've got to go through our atoms because you've got to get the complete uh, disdain for the human anatomy. <laughs> no, seriously, because you okay, you can see a real strong connection between golden and atoms, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The golden's people always look like they could actually stand on their own feet, whereas atoms didn't because their ankles were, you know, it went to almost nothing. Right, like their lower legs were triangles, and then they had feet, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what. You know, that's from there you get image for me. Like you get the fact that he turned like Adams turns it much more. He sort of turns it into much more of a geometric form. The mm-hmm. human body is much more of a geometric form, but still like over renders the shit out of it. Right. And so you get from that to Liefeld and Lee for me. Mm, see, I feel and I could be wrong that I would actually. And, and if this is a mistake, it's only, you know. Adams is much closer to being a contemporary of Liefeld and Lee. They're only about four years apart, I want to say, if that. Oh, yeah, yeah, if that. So, to me, I think it's more likely that they all came... They all came from Golden. Exactly, exactly. And it's they all sort of took... Because a, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, I think, has more to deal with kind of... What someone like Byrne would call, like, beginner's mistakes, or, you know what I mean? Like, just not... they They didn't... Do the they they didn't serve a long enough apprenticeship to actually fix their errors. They had to like streamline that fully into a into a style, mm-hmm. you know. But I think all of those guys, uh, and and my reason for this is, which it could be wrong, but it's um, it's just more the way that each of them are sim- similar to one another. But to me, it's a lot easier to see. Um, and I think this is where they come, where it comes in, where it's like, particularly for life, I just have a real tough time looking at Liefeld. Like I could see more, uh, if you said Jim Lee through Art Adams, I, I think I maybe could have gone with that, but it really seems with me that for, for Liefeld, um, and maybe even for Larson, uh, I see a lot more of the dynamism of the staging and also a certain degree of um design fetish that seems seems like it came more out of golden's work you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it, no, and no, just no, also I, with I, their ages it just seems far more likely that they were drooling over micronauts pages and that those were more influential for them you know along with george like george perez or whatever than yeah. the idea that that you know um that they were really taken in by the the long shot miniseries, you know, it, but it's it's like I don't know. Golden is one of those guys who I don't think I actually read a Golden comic until I read like Avengers ten, like mm. as a back issue when I was a kid. Because Golden wasn't really around that much after a while. 
Interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like, he sort of made his name, and then he fucking disappeared, apart from the occasional cover. Uh, yeah, but, but I think he hit such a sweet spot. You know but, what I well, mean? Well, that, that's, that's what I mean. Like, he, yeah. I, the fact that he didn't, he doesn't have a massive body of work. Right. And he's horrifically influential. I mean, but, so you've got the, you've got the image guys, you've got Ringo, who for me would, I would think is like almost the flip of someone like Liefeld. Yeah. Because yeah, exactly. his work is so open and, and you know, and mm-hmm. same with Sprouse, if you put Sprouse in there as well. Yeah. But then you've also got like Pat Broderick, who for me is always like Mike Golden's like uglier, difficile brother sure. in terms of visuals. Right. You know? Right. There's something weirdly similar in terms of surface, right. but almost everything else is like, you know, oh, that's the one with the club foot in the bad back. <laughs> you know? But he's got a sparkling personality. Uh, and oh, yeah, exactly. That personality is Peter B. Gillis's, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Oh, man, Peter B. Gillis. So, uh, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to actually, because this is something, oh, no, I hate to think that we're repeating ourselves, but, um, I know uh, this have is, we Have we talked about this before? We probably have, right? I don't know if we have, or, or rather the, the theory that I'm going to put forward is I, someone, I know I talked about it with someone, and, um, and God help us all if it was you, but I'm going to actually go out on a limb and say that the most influential comic artists usually have incredibly small bodies of work. Purely because they have a core. I don't know. I'm just thinking about how influential Steranko was, and Steranko really doesn't have that many pages of comics logged. Like Paul... That's true. And if you, but if you think about uh, Neil Adams as well, I think Neil Adams core comics work is really few issues of X-Men and Batman. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. I can kind of see that. He's got. A, he's also got his hands in the Superman. Like, I guess, yeah, and he's got Avengers as well. Yeah. I, so, all the stuff I forget about. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So, but, but you know, Stranko, relatively small number of pages. Paul oh, but, Pope, a relatively small number of comics pages. Sure, but I mean, you can go in the opposite direction and be like John Byrne, a metric shit on Kirby. Right. No, 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 absolutely. I, I'm just saying that there, and, and those guys are huge, but I'm just saying that there are guys who, you know, who kind of changed the game, kind of, and then they don't really do it for very long. And I guess in a way, Neil Adams actually would fit sort of closer to my thesis that way, you know, but... I, I, but is this also not... Like Barry Smith. If, Barry Smith, yeah, pretty influential. I'm wondering if this is also like this weird generational thing that the more people... Because as you were talking, I was like, Jeff Darrow. Jeff Darrow's done almost nothing, and Jeff Darrow right. like, has a massive... And I'm wondering, is it that the more modern people get, the more, or the more contemporary the artists are, mm-hmm. the less work they do because the less work they have to do? Well, that would be the argument that was put forward back in the 70s, too, that they were... You know, that guys like, I don't know, Mike Kaluta and Bernie Wrightson, you know what I mean? Like, they just, the opportunities outside comics were so much better that they, you know, left and were able to do other things. You know, they had the freedom to do other things, you know? Mm-hmm. So you've got the guys who just are an inspiration, you know, who inspire just from being there forever and just kind of it's just an onslaught you know they go from popularity to not i mean george perez really has logged a lot of comic book pages and also is hugely influential sure um but i don't know i think like you said darrow i think it's just kind of this thing of guys who are super unique and who push the comic style who 
who really kind of can radically push that style will be hugely influential to the people who read comics and kind of a pain in the ass to the people who are in the process of producing comics. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, Let's call it the Frank Quitely effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Frank Quitely is drawing new X-Men, and he's making them look skinny and cool in their new outfits. Every other artist is like, fuck you, what are these leather jackets? What are we supposed to do? Oh, Jesus, do I have to draw distinct body types? Right, exactly. For people who are actually drawing within the industry, you know, it's kind of like they've got their own style. Like, once you get there, it's kind of, eh. And, you know, and you also get work by kind of looking like someone else. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, there's this kind of, like, you know, like, ah, right. Like, God help me. I'm sure that I'm sure there actually are people who are walking around who are saying, like, I was super, super inspired by Dan Jurgens. You know, he has to have inspired somebody. But, you know, for me, my whole Dan Jurgens, I, I kind of can't see it. I go hysterically blind over the concept of it. But I just kind of think that by the same token, it's sort of like, you know what I mean? There's kind of that weird, like, you can get guys who kind of, um, whose work is just absolutely phenomenal, but it kind of, like, it's almost impossible for you to really see that they inspired someone because what they did was just sort of, you know, wasn't, it was so unflashy. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, as as a kid who was reading Booster Gold back in the day, Dan Jurgens was the man. Sure. Well, he, he took over Superman, and I was so excited, and then very quickly realized I should not have been so excited. <laughs> I don't know how quick there's you know it's it's sort of like i don't yeah jurgens is for me one of those guys but like the flip side of that might be someone like um uh jose luis garcia lopez you know mm-hmm. whose whose work is so beautiful but it's it is actually um beautiful in a completely unflashy way like you know as time goes on i don't really remember anyone singing the praises of jim apero back when his work was coming out you know it was kind of like uh mm-hmm. it's jim apero and it's it took a while or you know either people who came at it later or people like me who like turned back to it who was like holy shit this stuff is awesome you know, yeah, he he had a fan base, but it wasn't a fan base of this guy is a master. It was a fan base of this guy draws Batman every month. Right, exactly. It's like this guy draws Batman every month. But but in although terms of it has to num- be said, yeah, when I was a kid and Batman and these Outsiders was coming out, mm-hmm. which means I must have been like nine. Right, Jim Aparo's Batman was more Batman than anyone else. Like yeah. it was the Batman that I like compared to everything else to. Exactly. exactly. It was the Batman that time. looked right, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. that's kind of what I'm saying. It's like the artists that really leave an impression on other up-and-coming artists are the artists who look wrong, not right. You know what I mean? Like Mike Golden's character, Mike Golden's Marvel characters look kind of weird, you know? It, they oh, look, no, totally. The yeah. weird thing is that Avengers annual looks weird to me even now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, it all looks weirdly, curiously off-model and wrong in a weird way. Right, right, exactly. And and not the not the fundamentals, but, like, the actual characters. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, there's a guy dressed up as Captain America, as opposed to, there's Captain America. Right, exactly, because and he I rem- does something I remember a reading too it. off on that. Mm-hmm. I remember reading the first time and being like, Rogue's ugly, what the fuck? 
I mean, I didn't see what the fuck I was like ten, right. but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Like it was like this isn't rogue because I'd I had met quote unquote rogue through the Romita Junior Uncanny X Men. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so I had a very particular idea of what she looked like. Right. And she had, like, big hair. And and then, you know, you go back and see this rogue, and you're like, it's not just her hair is different. This is no. What? No. Right. It's not the same character. Well, and it's interesting to me, because as someone who went the other way around, who read Avengers Annual 10, and then, you know, and then later... Got, showed up in X-Men, yeah. Right. You know, there's kind of that thing of... Um, Romita Jr.'s work looks weird looks weird to me as well because as I recall and it's been years if not literally decades I think since I've seen that annual um you know he he draws the rogue I mean he always you know he just drew eyes bigger than Marvel characters eyes are you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I seem to remember he drew thick lips. Maybe I'm completely misremembering, but I seem to remember he was all about the eyes and the mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just, it's just, I mean, he was really good with faces, but in a way that really owed a little bit more to Disney, you know what I mean? Like, I always yeah, think of his yeah. faces as Disney faces. All the features are there, but they're also a little plumper than I think I'm, I was used to seeing. So there's that, we, there is that weird with the Marvel characters. It's like, that doesn't look right. That looks like a person wearing a suit, which, of course, when you grow up later, you're like, well, what are they supposed to look like? You know what I mean? So, They're supposed to look like naked people who are blue. Right. <laughs> with with wings growing out of the side of their fucking head. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's yeah. what he's looking like. I know. That's exactly. That's how like. it works. You know? Then, like, you realize, wait, he's supposed to be wearing chain mail. What? Yeah, right. Exactly. Just one of those little things where you're like, huh? No, he just has... Blue eczema, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's wearing a skin-tight top that has little rings on it, but they're drawn on. It's not chainmail. Come on. For God's sakes. I mean, what would that make him? Let's face it. Captain America would be a sweaty mess. You know what I mean? That guy must be smelly, you know? He's running around a chainmail vest in New York He's running around in the summer. You know what I mean? In New York in summer. Yeah. For justice, Jeff. For, for justice. <laughs> You know, I have to say, overdressed for justice is actually a tagline that should be used somewhere. Oh, my God. For Iron Man. Oh, Come yeah. on. Oh, you're right. Overdressed for justice. Iron Man. Uh, if you're listening to this, you can have that one. Yeah, right. That's a freebie. How <laughs> extravagant are we? Hey, here's a thing that fell out of our butt. Please, it's yours. <laughs> no charge to you. If at some point that shows up in this Alyssa and you not just lose our shit. That is true. That would be the best thing ever. Um, so let me see here. Wait, how, how did we get to this point? I, I know. It's like Golden. Oh, you know, you were talking about Golden and you were talking about him as the image influence. And then we were talking about the artists sort of that inspire other artists as opposed to the artists that sort of get work, I suppose. You know. No. Okay, here's a question, Jeff. Mm-hmm. What artists inspired you? Well, considering I cannot fucking draw, I mean, it was kind of funny. I, no, I, I mean, in the sense of, like, when you think of, like, classic comic artists, like, who are your pantheon? Well, oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, because the thing is, for me, is that there's... Well, okay... How do I put it? The great thing about being in comics for so long is kind of that weird, like, you have the guys that you love when you're, like, really young, and those are the guys who, again, sort of draw 
quote unquote right. Like we, you know, when we were talking the other week, which I think also got wiped where I was talking about sort of, uh, you know, my love of like Sal Basima, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause we're talking about how much Al Milgram disappoints both of us. Oh yeah. Milgram. Right. Oh yeah. See, that's it. If that's the other, I knew there was someone else. I'm like, that's yeah, that's, that's fanographic Sandman, yeah. Neil Gaiman. And yeah, Al Milgram fans just would have been like, you know, we are kickstartering a project to have Jeff and Graham killed. So, uh, you know, cause, cause of course we both went to that. Oh, but he was, I loved his little inside pages on Marvel fanfare, you know? Um, Actually, we didn't. We didn't? Okay. We really didn't go there. Uh, we went to, I really liked him on West Coast Avengers when he's linked by Joe Sinnott. Uh, right, and right, and then I mocked you. This is great. We can actually recreate this part of the conversation. We had a conversation about how basically everyone looks okay with their Exactly. I was like, that's no achievement whatsoever. I look uh, good inked by Joe Sinnott, you know? It's just that it just redraws everyone, which is great. And you kind of realize, like, he redrew Kirby. Do you know what I mean? Like, you look at his, uh, the Invisible Woman face, and you're like, oh, he redrew Kirby. See, I think the, the thing is, is that Senate, better than anyone, knew exactly when to redraw Kirby. You know? Yes, and to do it really subtly. Yeah. So, I mean, if you redraw look at... Redraw in such a way that it looks Kirby-esque. Yeah. Like, if you look at, like, the Brian... I think... I had a friend who actually forwarded this to me from, like, Brian Bendis' Tumblr, which was... The original Kirby page of full page of the Silver Surfer, followed by it inked by Senate, and mm-hmm. it is. I mean, it's he just nails it. I mean, he does not do. He doesn't fuck around. He puts. He cleans. He cleans every. Everything is there, but he yeah. just you know he cleans and sharpens it. You know, so and it's, that's that's what made Senate so great for Fantastic Four. Yeah. Exactly. Because, and we've talked before, but that's where it only comes in focus when Senate arrives. Yeah, exactly. It comes in focus when Senate arrives because Senate manages to harness the power of Kirby, mm-hmm. but make it more palatable. Yes, exactly. It manages to simultaneously keep it as strong as Kirby's pencils right. and like shave the edges off so it's not scary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's finally, it's, it's the, and, uh, you know, I really do believe in many ways. Well, I don't know. I was going to say it really. <laughs> I really do believe in many ways. And then your brain was like, but in many ways you don't. Jeff. In many ways. <laughs> well, cause I was going to say in many ways that really fired up Kirby, but honestly, looking at some of his pages in Thor, you know, Kirby was on fire there and he's still being inked by Vince Coletta. You know what oh, I yeah, mean? Kirby, I think Kirby was just on fire. Exactly. I think it was Kirby was just having his golden period. Exactly. And so it's just one of those stages where, for me, it's like Kirby, um, yeah, it's just, but Sin, it's, like you said, he literally snaps into focus. And I do think in that sense, he, like you said, he is the perfect Kirby inker because be, because of all those things that you say. So anyway, all of which is to say, like, when I was a kid, there was stuff that I really loved that was pretty generic you know, and with a few weirdo exceptions, you know, the the thing that really, for me, how I ended up kind of developing a, developing an idea for what artists were good, and I know I've talked about this before, were reading, like, comics where I did not like the artist or the art, and and yet I could not stop reading the book. And, and I mean, not just, like, get to the page, but I mean, like, then I would go right back to the front and start it again. And that was that stage of, like, as as a dude who loved Steve Englehart, you know, with Sal Basima on the art, like, Frank Robbins was a pretty tough road. But I'm like, okay, but we're still getting Steve Englehart. And then, boom, you make the transition to Kirby writing and drawing Kirby. And I was like, 
I hate this comic that I read six times through every month. You know what I mean? Exactly. I don't know why I keep rereading it, but I keep rereading it. Oh, my God. Right. He, what's really funny is you mentioned Frank Robbins uh, with Englehart. Mm-hmm. That is so problematic to me now. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Reading, reading these angels, like, the Buscema stuff sings. Yes. Like, I, Englehart and Buscema holy shit, that's just golden. Yeah, yeah. And then you hear Robbins, and my brain is just like, what? It's like I'm in a car that just shudders to a halt. It's Yeah, it's tough. It's a, it's a really tough transition between artists, you know? And I mean, Robbins, again, is another one of those dudes who... He's an interesting guy, because, you know, he, he, he had already gone through that period of inspiring a lot of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, in terms of... Yeah. Back in, back in the 50s, you know, but in terms of a guy who, like, looking back on it, it was, I'm glad the dude was getting work in a way, but at the same time, like, even when he was drawing stuff like the Invaders or whatever, I was just like, just, just, isn't there another Basima that can draw this? I understand if John and Sal are busy, but, you know, like... Mrs. Basima, you know what I mean? Like Grandpa Basima, <laughs> like somebody get a Basima in there, you know? Put a Basima yeah, on, on it. They've got, they've got two. They've got to be a bit more, right? There's got to be at least. There's got to be a clan. Somewhere. There's got to be a clan. Did you hear my five-year-old Portlandia sh- shout out there? By the way, I did, but I, I ignored it because I live in Portland and put a bird on it. Stopped being even vaguely entertaining. Roughly three minutes after the episode here. <laughs> really? Ah, that's a shame. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny now either, but I just love the idea of put a Basima on it is just, I think that's a great slogan. So, um, anyway. Another one for the Wait One t-shirts that we <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, right. So, all of which is to say, so, like, another example would be, like, Ditko, Ditko stuff, where I was, like, I much preferred John Romita, because John Romita's work is gorgeous. And again, for, because he was the art director at the at Marvel and was doing like 80% of the covers, nothing looked more right to me than, you know, John Romita doing Spider-Man, even though like every time I read the stories, I didn't like them. <laughs> like, it looked right. I don't know why I don't like this. Whereas by contrast, Steve Ditko's stuff looked wrong to me, and yet I would read any issue of that that I had like seven times. Seven yeah. times. You know, it was yeah. just like... It was just too good. So, I don't know. You know, I'm all over the map. I'm, you know, like, John Basima is not... I would not go out of my way to cross the street, really, to check out John Basima now, except when he does his Conan. And weirdly enough, you know, the Italian... The, there's a lot of Italian artists who love uh, John Basima's Silver Surfer work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing some of the Italian artists doing their riff on Basima's Silver Surfer is like... Oh right, that was pretty. That was pretty great. That was great stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, it's just weird because it's so. Depending on where you're going with Kirby, it's like a very, very different, you know. Um, but it's you know, so I, so I'm just kind of like the the stack. We would go on and on and on, you know. It's because I'm like the God. Some of the Starlin stuff I love, you know. It would be tough for me to basically sit down and have us do the volleyball brackets or whatever and work our way down through elimination until I finally got to... I mean, because seriously, John Byrne and Terry Austin, those guys on, on Iron Fist, I love their work on Iron Fist, you know? I really did. I still think of it. But I'm so... It's like, it's, you know, that stuff was practically mother's milk. It's really hard for me to be at all impartial about it now, you know? 
I, I yeah. don't know. Whereas, like, you can turn around and show me how, um, I, I don't know, another artist from that period is technically better. Like, I don't know, you know, Frank Bruner or somebody like that, I guess. I don't know. You know, and I'd just be like, hmm, I suppose. Maybe. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, well, I'm super curious because it's one of those things where, I, like, I kind of wanted you just to name names, like, not thinking about it. Oh, yeah, no, and I did the exact opposite. <laughs> well, I, I, I should have known. I was asking you. Ouch. But true. <laughs> but, no, it's one of those things because... Because, like, when I'm, like, you know, oh, favorite comic artists, they're so weirdly scattered. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know that's I mean? it. I'm, I'm like, you know. Go. It'd be all over the map, yeah. Kirby and Campbell and mm-hmm. Tuzanga and, right. uh, you know, God, Darwin Cook mm-hmm. and. Jim Mapero, you know. The, the, and... the very beginning of Vertical era Chris Bacalo. Oh, yeah. Like, right. shades between, like, issue 30 and issue 50. Oh, my God. Uh... Oh, right. Uh, actually, his early era stuff I thought was pretty damn good, too, which is kind of like... Yeah, but that, that's like my golden... Like, there's something about those, like, I don't know. It's It really is like 32 to 50 or something. Like, there's there's something in, like, those 18 issues or something. Yeah, you've said that That is that just before, so weirdly perfect for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, actually what would be interesting would be talking about those artists who are not especially good, per se, that we think of as not especially great, and trying to remember... Cause you know, have you ever had those things where there's, like, one artist, you don't think they're especially good, and then they do one issue that is just phenomenal? You know what I mean? No. <laughs> no, because that's the thing. Like, if I think they're not especially good, I think even their best issue I wouldn't think was phenomenal. Like, oh, I can't think of one where I'm like, I don't really like this guy. Oh, my God, this issue is spectacular. I can't, I can't. See, I, I could swear that I've had one of those situations, although I'm thinking like, yeah, what was that one Batman annual that was terrific? And I'm like, oh, yeah, the Michael Golden one. Interesting. <laughs> and I like Mary yeah. Michael Golden anyway, so I think it was Mike Barr's glory day for me, I guess. I don't was know. that with the Wraith? That's it, the Wraith. And the player yeah. on the other side, which is the quote, you know, the whole like, concept taken from an Ellery Queen novel. The, well, the best thing is I've never read it because I got it when I was a kid in a reprint in, I want to say I was in Denmark on vacation. Wow. <laughs> so I got like, I had like a, you know, some, it was from Denmark or maybe it was from, oh God, Holland. I can't remember. There was periods when I was a kid, mm-hmm. like, you know, 12, 13, um, that my family would go on vacation to like, you know, Holland or Denmark or, you know, places in Europe, and I would buy the comics there. Sure, which is awesome. That sounds purely, so great. Purely to follow, like, mm-hmm. the pictures. Right. Um, and it was Austin, it was Burnt Austin X-Men, which is the first time I'd seen it. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was uh, Romita Jr. Spider-Man, I think it was probably Stern writing. Uh, there was that Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, God, all I remember is, and I can't even remember what country this was in. I just remember the X Men comic was called Project X with a K. Project wow. with a K Project X. X. And it was, it was the, it was, uh, it was pretty much like it was everything from the first appearance of Alpha Flight through to the beginning of Dark Phoenix. Holy shit, that's quite a little collection. It's right a there. chunk, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I never, but like, I hadn't read the comics. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I'm right. seeing stuff for the first time, like in a language I don't understand. So I'm literally just focusing on the art. Oh man, that's rough. You know, I'm not sure if that ever. It's weird. I, I'm like 
good on you, and I love doing that. I'm like, I've almost never done that, I have to say. Like, there are people that I admire the shit out of for being able to pick stuff up in a foreign language. Um, And in fact, God, okay, this is not good. Give me a second here. (laughs) One second. Um, Talk amongst yourselves, Graham. Uh, oh, things haven't gone well. No, I did that when I was the last time. I not the last time. I'm saying I'm completely lying. Years ago, when I was in uh, shit Venice, maybe mm-hmm. uh, I remember I picked up an issue of Dylan Dog purely because whoever drew it at the time had this spectacular line. Oh yeah, like this amazing like mm-hmm. uh, Toth esque, but it wasn't really. It was like Toth if Toth had somehow been mixed with Dick Giordano. Right. If you can imagine that, yeah, I, right, weird, yeah. but beautiful line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember just being like, "Oh, this looks amazing!" Right. I have no fucking idea what's going on in this comic, but it looks so good. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. If if there's stuff like that, it's super. But like, for example, um, Miguel Corti, who longtime listeners may remember as ha- having done created the thirteenth issue of Watchmen. Um, he came out here and we had lunch and because he is just one of the greatest, nicest guys in the world, he brought a bunch of manga for me. And I'm like, oh boy! And he was like, yeah, there's this book and this book. And he gave me this amazing comic that I've been, manga that I've been meaning to talk about forever that's all wordless panels about a cat that I swear to God seems like a practical joke being played on people who don't speak a language. You know, it's just that like, (laughs) hey, Japanese people, give this to people who don't speak the language. It means nothing, but they will scratch their brains. They will, they will they will just read it until they bleed because it is impenetrable. <laughs> like it's like a cat doing jumping jacks and then three people look at it and then there's like it's just has a weird blank expression. Like I'm like, did they fart? Like honestly, even if you believe that the but, cat but doing jumping jacks farts. You could write your own stories over it. That's I have no imagination, Graham. I thought I had <laughs> imagination. That's why I hate this shit. I'm like, nothing is happening. And that's my thing. This is like I look at books that I adore and he's like, hey, have this collection. And I pick this up. I'm like, nothing's happening. This is a lie. There's no story here. This this is just a bunch of female robots doing jumping jacks. That was actually this ghost in the shell. That was the closest I came to figuring out a story. But the rest of it, I'm like, I don't know. Like, people keep bumping into each other and then, like, sweating. That's that's the Japanese manga experience. But, you know, like, different stories at 20 pages ago. And I'm like... And that's my that's my secret shame. Everyone, we all talk about following panel-to-panel flow and the miracle of comics and the invisible language. Like, fucking take words out of the equation, and I'm like, I I don't know. Like, you know, I just, it's so humiliating for me. But I'm just like, it's it's like charades, but where the book is, let's fuck with Jeff. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Those are the best games of Shuri. Oh my god. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I I just I want to say that I love that stuff cuz I kind of do. Like, but that's the thing. You you're like, I love the idea of that stuff, but yeah. when you actually ask me to do it, right. Oh shit, no. You know, the closest that I've come to it is um the the ginormous encyclopedia of comics that was assembled by Maurice Horn and a, a few other guys. Um, that my parents bought for me, and then they were like, "You can read, you can buy the only if you read this." And I read it, and it had comics from every language, but for the most part, it was only a panel or two. And then at that point, you know what I mean? Like, 
I should, and of course, there's the nudity clause, which is like, if the person's nude, it really doesn't like. Then I'm like, okay, I will turn as many pages of this as as you need me to. Like the story is Barbarella is naked. You know what I mean? Like that was like, <laughs> I don't have any trouble with the fact that there's no story. I don't understand why the robots wearing suspenders. It does not. It does not slow me down one trice. You know. So, um, but the rest of the stuff, so like looking at, looking at individual panels, I will actually love because I can look at the, appreciate the artistry in it. But when there's a book and I'm sort of looking through the book, I end up like kind of, I just end up harassing myself basically. Well, it's much easier to look at an individual panel and appreciate it as quote unquote art. Exactly. Exactly. And by that, I mean like the art in it, but also look at this image. Mm-hmm. This image is speaking to me on its own level. Like, it, there's, there's, yeah, it, it, when, when you have a page, when you actually have sequentials in it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then the notion of story gets in the way almost of appreciating the visuals of it. Right. Your, your enjoyment of the, of the aesthetic is interrupted by your uh, confusion mm-hmm. of what is actually happening. Right, right, exactly. And so I, I think I'm very much, and this will surprise no one, I am somebody who's like, is always unfortunately trying to assemble meaning out of what I'm looking at, whether I like it, you know, whether I want to or not. You know, it's one of those unfortunate things. Um, okay, I, I have to ask you then. Right. When you are reading uh, magazines or newspapers or something, and there is there are multiple images on a page, and it's not sequential, do you end up trying to find a... a sequential meaning to it oh that's nice yeah you mean like from like ads or what exactly yeah or or you know you're reading fuck no it's time and they have like you know they have three stories on one page and on the opposing page they have three images to illustrate those stories but the images themselves are unconnected do you find yourself subconsciously looking for uh like you know this page is just imagery it's multiple images do you have this moment of being like there's no connection. I, like, you know, I, I have to stop myself finding a connection. I'm more like that if I can't if I can't read the words. You know what I mean? Like I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you like like you're in a doctor's office or something, and there's a magazine in another language, usually Spanish, and and that happens, then I will do that. But but usually the the I, this was something that I noticed while reading comics is I, I'm pretty quick to jump from panel like when I read comics I'm going to the captions and the balloons excuse me I, it's like I read the words in a panel first then I take in the visual meaning and then I move on to the next panel so it's very I'm very much led by my nose that way um, yeah and, and in fact I think that's where the stuff that I, you know, appreciate has a lot to do, you know, for better or for worse with, with people running a juxtaposition of that stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, what's that? I don't know. Do you remember that? I don't know if you, you would like it, but I adored that Chris Ware superhero piece, you know, the real early one where it's. It's like a traditional superhero story, but then the 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 cat. It's all the captions are a story being told about a kid and his dad. Do you, you know what I mean? I, I want to say it's I called actually, Oh No or something. Or yeah. I actually don't know what you mean. It, it's real. And I, I I honestly like what you're saying. That like my brain trip to Dean Tripp's um, something terrible that everyone's been talking about. Oh right, which I still haven't read, unfortunately. So uh, I I want. But to. I I think I think that kind. Of, 
Yes. Juxtaposition of, you know, here is image telling narrative A, here is text telling narrative B, they combine for a narrative C. Right. Thing is, like, incredibly common now. Mm -hmm. Like, I, almost the norm. Yeah, it is almost the norm. Exactly. So the story is called I Guess by Chris Ware, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and it is, I want to say it's from uh, an early Raw page. Uh, uh, I don't know about how early. It's it's like pre-Acme novelty, but not all the oh, way wow. back to Floyd yeah. Fuzel or whatever the hell. What's the name of Chris Ware's early book that he wanted destroyed, the one from Eclipse or whatever? I have absolutely no idea. You know, Floyd, Floyd, is it Floyd I, I, or Lloyd? Floyd Farland? Is that I, it? I honestly have no idea. You don't know? Okay. So I, I mean, I really, I, you're, you're way past my uh, knowledge of Chris Ware at this time. <laughs> so Chris Ware put out a book called Floyd Farland, Citizen of the Future. It's like back in night, like 1987 or something. It was published by Eclipse. It's like 43 pages. I never saw it. And it is apparently, I think it might have been something that ran in the Daily Texan newspaper. Um which is the University of Texas Austin student newspaper, but it it was it's super super early, and he was like, "Don't don't look at this, don't read this, don't ever find this, please. I will never have this reprinted, republished. Don't mention it to me." Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> oh, so what happens is, you know, in the future when heaven forbid, Chris Ware is dead, someone will reprint it, and you know, a seventy-five dollar hardcover with 12 essays by Dave Eggers about how important it was. <laughs> oh, meow. I have to really say that's the perfect choice, really. I mean, who knows? They could get some other people in there. It's like essayist for hire. It's like, yeah, I'll I'll talk about how great this is. I even think something like that, maybe. So, um, which reminds me, I sort of want to talk about Doctor Who briefly. I don't know what else. I feel like once again, I'm keeping us jumping from topic to topic without that. Uh, okay, well, let's let's talk about Doctor Who. I actually, uh, did you see the this uh, prequel that was on that was released this morning? Yeah, the minisode. I did. Yeah. That's why I wanted to wanted to talk with you about it a little bit. So I I love I loved it, uh, but I also think it's so fascinating to mm -hmm. me the way that Doctor Who and actually the Marvel movies mm -hmm. are doing continuing narrative mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So anyway, what were you going to say about it? No, I, I for, well, first off, I was going to ask you about it to see what your reaction was as a, a, a much larger Whovian than I am. Um, I figured you would like it because one of the things that was nice about it was having watched just whatever the season and a half that I, I was able to watch of Doctor Who before, mm -hmm. you know, Eddie and I pretty Giving much up. bailed. Yeah. yeah. Um, was kind of like, oh, kind of like, oh, this all makes sense, you know, and also the way of, how do I put it? Like, it's, you know, the thing that I really liked about it was it sort of reminds me of those, um, uh, like when somebody does like an ultimate Batman fan film. You know what I mean? Like, it, it really had sort of a, a very high-end fan film feel, feel to it. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was really odd to me, where it was kind of like, wait, this is the guy who's regularly making the show? Because it really <laughs> felt like someone who's like... Because it looks oddly cheap. It looks oddly cheap, which admittedly is part of the... I know that that's... Some people are very keyed into the idea that that has to be part of the Doctor Who aesthetic, I suppose. 
but it is. It looks. It, it, it looked particularly cheap. Uh, yeah. Doctor Who has done Minnesotes before. Mm-hmm. Doctor Who has been doing Minnesotes on and off since Stephen Moffat took over as showrunner. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely through season shit, season six. Mm-hmm. I want to say there's something like five different Minnesotes. Good grief. Um, of varying lengths. Like mm-hmm. there, there's definitely uh, one that's on the DVD that is like maybe 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a chunk. It's a chunk of a story. Right. Um, and they're all they're of an ilk with this one, except this one has a really not an important plot point, but like it's a it pretty big, confirm- pretty well, big. Yeah. It, it confirms mm-hmm. something that fans have been speculating on for months now. Yeah. And it's so weird that they did it this way as opposed to in the show itself, which is what's fascinating me also about um, the Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. Because the end of Thor, or Thor 2, I should say. Yes. Um, they have the, you know, and here's how it ties into Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. Which is also goes along with the end of the Avengers as in here's what we're building up to this big story and I'm fascinated by the idea of you will basically get rid of the exposition of your story by placing it outside every other story as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like you just offload your exposition as an easter egg right which is kind of crazy to me well okay I don't know about Thor but one of the things that actually interested me about the Doctor Who minisode because I was able to get it was kind of this idea of like, how do I get it? Um, it was kind of, I felt like it was a perfect sort of gambit for Moffat in a way because it allowed him to do everything without having to do any of it well. You know what I mean? Like there was really kind of a, like there were a couple of those lines which were just so cheesy, but of course were brilliant. And I mean, because it's only six minutes and it's hyper compressed, you can kind of get from like, people holding up the little chalices and him being like, oh, okay, and just going at it, and even the physician heal thyself line. Like, within the... Oh, but no, it, but it's all of that. I mean, at the start, he's, it starts off with, you know, with the woman saying, just stress, stress, and the computer's like, do you need a doctor? And she's like, I don't need a doctor. Right. Which is century line. You know, it's, it's, it's so cliched or, or yes. hyper aware of the cliche. Yeah. That it's simil- It allows Moffat to be super cheap with his dialogue. Like exactly, it's, it's really cheesy, yeah. but in such a way that you're like, well, he's he's laughing at it, obviously. Well, he's laughing at it, but I think it's also just kind of like there's a gimme to it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's 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 very much like that idea of like when you go back down to like when you do a five page two thousand AD story, you've got to cut you've got to cut corners. You have to telegraph. You have to cartoon basically. You know what I mean? And so in order to get to the story you you wind everything super tight um and and so it's not it's not subtle it's not especially elegant but what it does is it's got that very vulgar satisfying kick to it you know what i mean and uh, well here's yeah. the thing so if you've been watching doctor who and especially if you've watched the russell davis years right um like this this minisode is a ridiculous amount of payoff mm-hmm. like it's an insane amount of payoff it's stuff you've been waiting years for right because you've never seen the time war period before ever that's never been shown on screen oh interesting it's just been mentioned before yeah and it's been the driver of so much of the the davish years Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because the first season is the eggless doctor 
being like, I have done this terrible thing that I can't talk to you about. Ah, maybe I've killed my entire race. No, there's the Daleks. I killed all them too. No, I'm so, you know, I am overcome by this terrible thing I have done. Right. And then through the, the tenant years, you get more revelation of what that actually is. Mm-hmm. You, get, you get more of it to the point where the final tenant episodes and final Davis episodes are explicitly dealing with it. Interesting. Uh, it's it's characters trying to undo what he did in the Time War. Interesting. But you've never seen the Time War before. Wow. So so for this, like in this six minutes, you're like, holy shit! It's in the middle of the Time War. Right. This is this is big in and of itself. Right. You get the um, I think her name is Cassie or Callie. Mm-hmm. You get the, the the woman who is neither a Time Lord nor a Dalek, being like, okay, you're Time Lords, you're fucking dangerous. You have to get away from me. Right. So you get the idea of this is how it's affected everyone else. Yeah. You get the witches who, you know, for all intents and purposes, are Shakespearean witches being like, we are exposition machines. I'd like to move along the plot. Would yes. you like to regenerate now? Uh, <laughs> but you also see, on completely on a fan service, you see the Eighth Doctor regenerate, which you've never seen. Right. Uh, you see the introduction of John Hurt. Yes, the re- uh, quasi-reintroduction of John Hurt in that way. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, you get all these. You get it's so much. Like it's so much fan service. Yes, but it's also so much uh, exposition mm-hmm. that you know it's obviously going to be necessary for the the special episode in two weeks. Right, right. You know, it's it's crazy. It's it's like it was really well done in mm-hmm. that sense. Yes, it really is. Like, you know, here's your trailer, which is also part one of the story. It's like when you had comics and they're like, "This cover is the first panel of the story." <laughs> You know, we're trying to grab your attention, but this is actually part of the narrative. Right, right. No, I, I it was fascinating to me because it really did a, a really, a real interesting job of not only turning the Doctor Who, it just, everything got turned on its head. Not only was the, you know, like you said, not only is there a ton of payoff for people, but of course there's a lot of, I mean, it's that, that, Reversal is exactly what everyone had been speculating about for a while, and mm-hmm. and so it comes around. If I'm understanding it correctly, and I may not, but you know that re- that reveal comes around, and it's like, again, there's just that weird thing of like, okay, not only is this an inv- it's an inversion of a Doctor Who narrative because it's the Doctor finding the companion, but the companion specifically rejects him and dies, you know, and mm-hmm. therefore he changes into something else as a result. But there's that idea of like, weirdly enough, it's also, like I said, it's like a fan, it's like a fan film. So therefore it's jammed with lots of like fan service, like, Oh, this is what everyone always wants to see, you know, and work. But also, but also the turning in a, that on its head. Yes, see, exactly. This is, this is the thing that you wouldn't normally see. Yes. You see the doctor rejecting helping people. You see the doctor actually rejecting his identity. Yes, exactly. So it's all this weird stuff in this way that like a big Doctor Who fan would want, but like, but like the suits would never let you show. Except it's really the suits. You know what I mean? It's yeah, exactly. Like a, yeah, it's, it's and it's you know it's totally the suits because it's here to tell you to watch this big thing that they're doing. Yes. You know, a week and a half from now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just really found it um, fascinating by by you know it would be great and it was great I I ended up seeing seeing it through Abe's blog uh, and Abe was really kind of like someone who's not been especially pleased with the last couple of seasons and he's like it's amazing like just how little I need to get me excited again where it's like oh hey 
<laughs> like maybe Moffat's going to turn this around, you know, kind of thing, you know, just well, what's fascinating is like, like, so I've been watching a shit ton of Doctor Who recently. I've just, in fact, just been experiencing a shit ton of Doctor Who. I've also been reading the uh, writer's tale again. Oh yeah. Which is the, the uh, Russell Davis book where he's emailing the journalist for while he's writing his last year right. and then the specials, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I, have I recommended this book to you before? Several times, several times. Yeah. And I, yeah. I have to say, I, how do I put it? I'm like, yeah, I'll get around to it. It's not like now that I'm hooked on 2000 AD, the 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 craving that I feel for thrill power overload. Like that book is like <laughs> a to- like a miss. I'm like, why aren't you guys republishing this? Why isn't it out on Kindle? Like back when you were like, hey, Zenith is coming out and it's collected. I'm like, fuck that. What about thrill power overload? When is that coming out? You know, so. Anyway, anyway, you 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 have mentioned uh, the doctor. No, so I see. I I've been re- you know uh, watching the the episodes. I've been uh, reading the writer's tale. Um, what's amazing to me is that Moffat's first couple of years are super tight. Mm-hmm. You you might not like them, but they're super tight. And then his third year is flabby as shit. Right. You know, it's interesting because I feel that, uh, and I could be wrong because of the two years that I saw with. Uh, of Moffat and and it was jumping around a lot admittedly through the second season and I think I started to watch what's the third where the one where he gets killed by the dude in the astronaut spacesuit in America is that the beginning of the third season it's the beginning of the second season oh is that the beginning of the second season oh, Jesus yeah. okay I just had this kind of um you know Moffat took I felt a lot of plays from the Joss Whedon playbook for uh Doctor Who and I'm not and I feel like some of those plays didn't really quite like they didn't always work when Whedon was doing them either. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, to me, tight is kind of a well, maybe it is. Maybe it was just it was well done enough that you thought that you were pretty sure that he knew what he was doing or where he was going. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But honestly, like, really, it wasn't too far into the second season where I was like. He's kind of gassing us along and is waiting to figure out where he's going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's one of the things I really like about the writer's tale is that you see that Russell Davis has no plan. Like, he, that's not true. He has a vague plan, but he really doesn't know the details. Right. And there's parts where he's like, I've just worked it out. And this connects back to this. Everyone would think I meant it, which is great. Like, it's really yeah. great to see behind the scenes where he's honestly like, I really had no fucking idea how to connect all this up. But it turns out it connects. That's great. And, like, the relief. Um, but you have, like, I think that Moffat at least made it seem as if he had more of an idea, or, you know, at the end, he was able to go back and revise things to make it seem like he had more of an idea. Right. Whereas the third season is, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, the third season is, the third season just seemed like he was super tired and distracted. Right. Well, my... Because there's not the through line at all. My theory is, is that... Mm. Well, it's a, you know, it's a little bit like there's very few guys who are Jack Kirby. You know what I mean? Like yeah, Jack Kirby yeah. got to that stage of like, I'm drawing it as it's happening. It's all going to tie together and boom, you know, and and doing it without really thinking about it. But like by the very nature, like the shit that Moffat did so well on Doctor Who, it almost by its nature requires a lot of time you know, to percolate. And that's always my thing about Doctor Who that really kind of, when I was watching it, it's like, yeah, you got good episodes 
from Moffat as long as you had to put up, you know, as long as you also knew that you were going to get bored to shit by Moriarty's episode. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, no, no. And I think that, I think that weirdly enough, that's part of the charm slash curse of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There will never be a season of Doctor Who where every episode is a winner, and there will always be at least one that is a total turd. Yeah, there's going to be one that's a total turd, and sometimes more than one, because in order to get Doctor Who right, it I think it requires some real rigorous reworking. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, I, I, you can tell. For example, Moffat's first season, you can tell he had much more time to write it than his second. Right. Exactly. Well, that's it. Because he, there, there is, it is really is so much more yeah. uh, fine-tuned. Yeah, it's And the fine-tuned. second one, it hangs together mm-hmm. in part because of goodwill. Yes, exactly. Uh, and by the third one, you're just like, well... It, and in part because the second... His, Moffat's second season ends with... An ex, like, explicitly ends with a question. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, what is the Doctor's real name? Mm-hmm. Like that is it. That is pretty much the point of the entire last episode, and it is the last line of dialogue in the in the episode. Mm-hmm. And then his third season, he hides from that for the entire season until the final episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're like, no, you you literally left us with that cliffhanger. Which you can't just ignore that cliffhanger. To me, is also. I mean, that's. I mean, again, that's. I see that in. A lot. I'm sure there's other series, but that really strikes me of the glory season in Buffy, you know, where it's like, hey, we've got the glory character. She's the big bad. Okay, we introduced her too fucking early. All right, how the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the fifth season of Buffy? Is that the what? The fifth season? Uh, Maybe. No, the fourth was Adam. The fourth was in college. Yeah, exactly, which, which I liked which, and no one else does. Exactly, I was going to say, that's that's the one, oh, Adam's season of Buffy. Well, no. it's two and three uh, are fucking great. Four, I think, to me, is considering that it really was clear they didn't have a roadmap, I thought it ended up snapping together really well. Fifth is Glory, and it's just a huge fucking mess. And then, and then that's kind of it. And then sixth to me is also a mess. And it's kind of that like, oh, uh, kind of like you said, some of that goodwill has got four to me is a season that, like you said, succeeds because of, in part because of, in no small part because of goodwill. You know? Yeah, because four is really four of Buffy is really obvious mm-hmm. that they had roadmap, and then they realized at some point the roadmap didn't work. Right. Yeah, exactly. The roadmap didn't work, or the the rumors that I've heard is that they didn't even have a roadmap. They were like, okay, we're just going to throw a lot of shit. Yeah, we, there we'll we'll work it out. Yeah, and then it just uh, yeah, yeah, and then it, it, um, yeah, and then you know, five is five is five is one where you're like, oh, they've introduced Glory too early, and they really don't know what to do with her. Right, right, exactly. You know, she's just she's this omnipotent being, and there is no reason for her not to be attacking them now, but we can't attack them now because it's not the end of the season, and what do we do? Right. I've told you about the whole Glory Galactus thing, right? My whole Glory Galactus theory? I don't think you have, but I think you should. I also should tell you, give you a heads up right now, I have to get off the phone relatively soon. Oh, okay, sorry. I figured we were going to be podcasting right through to the 6.30 mark. This will be super short. Yeah, no, no, no. No, we are going to be podcasting right through 6.30. It's just like that's 20 minutes from now. Right. No, no, no. I'm aware. Uh, But the great thing is I like, I didn't read comics, so who knows? I don't care. Let's talk about anything, Graham. What's your feet like? You know, that sort of thing. (laughs) So my theory is is that Glory is, you know that that, – potentially apocryphal story about Galactus um, that, you know, oh, 
G stands for God. Yeah, exactly. That he was going to fight God, and everybody's like, uh. I really feel that that's the case with Glory too. Is is that Glory is supposed was maybe supposed to be God, and they backed off of it because she is this unspeakable. Oh, that's nuts. I mean, I totally I can see why you think that, but I also cannot believe anyone involved in the show actually thought they could have explicitly got away with having Buffy fight God. Well, they start off with a deity who can't be named. You know what I mean? That's pretty. There's there's a lot of places of where that's supposed to go. You know, and then of course later on, admittedly, it's totally pulled out of their ass because they don't know where they're going. But they do have they they've got the quasi Trinity thing that they're sort of trying to trying to piece together. Of oh man, I'm gonna have to go back and watch season five of Buffy. Don't Thanks, do it. Jen. No, that's the worst thing ever. But um, anyway, that's just that. Like I said, I think that's my theory. And and back in the day, they were being. I think they were feeling punk rock enough that they thought they could pull it off, and then the whole thing. Buffy vs. God, man. Yeah, it's awesome. Hey. Yes. So I've, I've got to ask you now that you have internet at your house. Have you seen Misfits? Uh, yes. First episode, not the second episode. So oh, we can't talk about it. I know. <laughs> I know. See, this is the problem. We've got internet in the house, but we also have HBO Go. So it's like we watch <laughs> Misfits, and then it's been Deadwood, Deadwood, Deadwood. But um. <laughs> Uh, I'm so well, sorry because you well, saw the third episode and did it confirm I saw the your fourth episode? Like I've seen all, of it. I'm completely up to date now. But did it go where you thought it was going to go, or did no, it fake you out? Not at all. Okay. So, listeners, last week in the episode that you will never hear, uh, I said, "Jeff, have you seen Misfits?" And Jeff was like, "No, I haven't seen it. My internet's terrible." And I said, "They're going somewhere that's really disturbing me in the second episode, but I think they're going to do a swerve in the third." Mm-hmm. And they don't do that swerve. They do another swerve that's really fucking close, but they don't do the swerve I thought they were going to do. Interesting. And the okay. thing that really... I I really... I, uh, I, I actually I can give you a bit more of a hint about what I'm talking about because you've seen the first episode. Yes. Which is, you know about Alex's new superpower now, right? Yes. And Alex's new superpower, and you've seen him use it on Finn. Yes. There is a very, very, very fascinating male gaze treatment of homosexuality and explicitly male-on-male homophobia Mm -hmm. in Misfits this year. Oh, homophobia. Right. Uh In part because of Alex's superpower. Right. Right? Yeah. Which is played for laughs, but is also entirely there. Yes. There is something in... The previews at the end of the second episode for the third episode that plays on that, and then the third episode plays out much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's really, really... I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of it. Shit. Because, of course, I'm like, well, Graham, I don't know anything. I, I, I Okay, <laughs> so here's the thing. I, I yeah. was... Uh, so when you said, like, I think they're going to go to this thing in this place, the end of the first episode, which made me laugh, but was a huge, like, what a mess. That was clearly, like, two episodes, like, jammed down to one episode, or it was... I kind of, uh, with the exception of the resolution of the first episode, I think that's a great episode. I love it. I, I, I love it, it too. Their, their, play, their treatment of the Satanism, mm-hmm. and the fact that everyone is possessed... But completely normal. Yes, I yeah, kind yeah. of loved. I no, 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 loved. absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, 
they have no problem with like you know slaughtering animals and being like oh no i'm going to possess you now right but are then going isn't it totally weird that we're still normal and yet we're slaves of satan yes like all those conversations are hilarious to me yeah no that part Uh, was great yeah but the resolution is really problematic right uh well, it's doubly problematic. I mean, part of it is is like, of course, I really hate hated Alex's character prior, but at least they got him on so, the, the actor on some acting lessons, so he's a little more he's inconsistent, but he's not actually boring, I suppose anymore. Um, but uh, I mean, that idea was complete. I mean, it was completely crazy and bullshit, and it it was the thing that sort of in. I don't know if interested me is not the is the wrong word but they played the homophobia for laugh they played the the idea that he's you know his depowering of finn uh very much for laughs um and not in any realistic way but there's kind of that weird then they close on the scene of their god what's his name it's not the council the guidance counselor what, what yeah, is... no, no, the the the, the officer, the guy, the guy who yeah, basically the truancy sure. officer, yeah, yeah, you know, um, is looking quite upset and or very perturbed. And as I recall from the previous season, they established that the truancy officer was gay. Um, yes, in in a in a way that also seemed uh, how do I put it, really crazily homophobic. Um, oh, uh, Jeff. Just wait until the third episode. We'll see, and that's what I'm saying. Is so at the end, the end of the episode, because it really does have this weird, um, you know, they take this guy who's, you know, clearly a psychopath, and he's fixated on Finn, and then they add in that little extra piece of like, oh, he walks in and sees sees Finn, you know in flagrante delicto or however it's pronounced and is kind of like and you see him looking disturbed at the end and you're like oh wait are we supposed to believe that he was in love with that he's in love with Finn that he's fixated on Finn and I assume this is what you were talking about about where they were going I suppose mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. and I and so I kind of had this thing of like I don't know I, part of me was like well I'll see where that sort of plays out but for me I was kind of like well that doesn't go out of because the whole revelation of him being gay and singing karaoke or whatever but clearly being a sociopathic fascist really rubbed me the wrong way at the time too you know what i mean okay you're going to have a significant amount of problems with the third episode wow okay all right that's like really but the other thing is there is also a their attempt at resolution of that mm. in the third episode is simultaneously really funny, not because of the homophobia, but because of the callback to an earlier running joke in Misfits. Wow. That is smart twice. <laughs> well, it's my goodness. It's one of those you're like, I can't believe they did that. And then you're like, oh, I can't believe they did that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is is sort of. I have to say, when I started watching the the first episode of Misfits of this season, I went from oh they've told you know they've totally lost the plot to like oh no they've still got their game they've still got it. Mean, I I, yeah. I think this season is so much sharper than last season. Yeah, was well, just really really nice to see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that the the Abby because re- you get Abby resolution. Uh, oh, nice. In the first episodes as well, mm-hmm. the Abbey resolution I loved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. no, nothing held back. Absolutely loved it because I did not see it coming, and it makes 
complete sense. It's oh. a wonderful, wonderful resolution for her. Oh, that's great. Um, and there's the second episode, like I said last week, is a Rudy-centric episode, and mm-hmm. therefore is awesome. The yes. fourth episode is a Rudy-centric episode. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, considering both of us are completely in love with Rudy. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, you'll find a lot to like about it. Good, 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 good. But the, but the, the homophobia is really weirdly disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, I because I can't quite put my finger on whether they're being like we're being ironically homophobic, right. whether they're being genuinely homophobic, and if it matters because right. there's no such real there's not really such thing as ironically homophobic. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I'll be curious as to where they go because every once in a while, Misfits does that weird like, um, kind of like oh we're so punk that we're going to basically turn things inside out you know what i mean like kind of the really shit comparison would be to like south the way that south park sort of tries to be like we are so outrageous that when we show the slightest bit of heart you're going to be incredibly moved kind of thing you know yeah yeah um and and so there are times where they've done stuff there's been stuff that's been done on misfits that I thought kind of necessarily didn't work. Like the whole uh, Curtis, Curtis's, one of Curtis's gender swap episodes where people were like, that was just like the best flat out trans, you know, treatment of transgender issues on television ever. And I was like, really? Because it kind of seemed like they were having a laugh, you know, but I don't know. You know, that's kind of a. Yeah, it's like it's, it's. It's a it's an incredibly problematic show, but at the same time, it's also an incredibly good show. Ooh, hey! Speaking of incredibly pr- uh, problematic, um, do you want to like get yourself like in hot water about Brandon McCarthy? <laughs> oh man! When you said "but," I thought you were going to go to the other "but" that I I don't want to talk about for fear of libel. Um, Bob or Kane? slander? No, Bill I will tell you. I will tell you when we're not recording, Jeff. Bruce Banner? Um, yeah, Bruce Banner. Uh, Brandon McCarthy. I was uh, I was really disappointed. I, yes. I, seeing Brandon McCarthy talk about the brown shirts and the leftist brigade and enough on, you know, black on white, white, white on black violence. Why do we never hear about black on black violence? The, you know, the leftist news media are hiding this. That's just bullshit. And it was really disappointing to see. Incredibly. I was... I was almost as disappointed to see uh, Rich Johnson give him a platform to try and weasel out of it afterwards. Yeah. I was really, really upset by that uh, bleeding cool piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. if you haven't seen it, listeners, is essentially a piece where Brendan McCarthy's like, I'm not racist. Right. Yet. Yeah, basically. It's, it's, it's basically, I like, who said I'm racist? I'm not racist. I've been taught to think for myself the end, which is, yeah. you know horrific and rich essentially ends up with like well there you go what who do you believe well and it's like there I, was I, I that, that but then racist dudes yeah exactly well rich also kind of did that well it's never boring and it, people are like dude it's racist you know like that yeah, thing yeah, of he, like he, yeah he did, try, he did try and play it off like what's this wacky guy gonna say next it's oh my god it's like a show but i mean i sort of how do i put it i sort of feel like I'm not so shocked by that because Rich Johnson has been giving Mark Miller a pass forever. You know what I mean? Like Mark Miller. Uh, I, I wasn't shocked. I was just really disappointed. I mean, that's kind of the uh, right. Like I, I would rather he gave it a pass than right. apologize for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 
I think that that just is, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking in a way. I'm it not really, really is, enough it, of a Brandon it, McCarthy thing, but I person, but I can see being heartbroken by that, you know. I I wouldn't say I was heartbroken, but I was really disappointed. Yeah, well, I, see, that's like, it. Yeah. I was I was just like, I I. I do, it's not even I wanted you to be better. I just didn't want you to be a fucking dick. Right, right. Well, I have to say this is one of those things where I feel, Graham, this is wait, what's goal? You know what I mean? Like my theory is that comic books will drive people crazy. And particularly by, by people, I mean artists. You know what I mean? They spend so long at the drawing board. They have to look at things that they end up listening to too much conservative radio because conservative radio <laughs> goes on for hours and is kind of weirdly entertaining, you know, and it peels to that whole, like, oh, I can think for myself. Yeah, you tell them, Rush, that kind of thing. Like, if we if we had more entertaining comic podcasts, Graham McMillan, we can keep comic book artists from turning into racist thugs. You know what I mean? By being able to talk and keep them entertained, we need to go from doing two hours to six hours, basically so that guys working on artboards. Yeah. You're not even doing this intentionally, but you're giving the best segue to the thing we're doing this weekend. Making sweet love to our wives. (laughs) Besides that, Jeff. I got I'm, I got nothing. What are we doing this there weekend? Might, there might have been an email chain about us doing something on Sunday, Jeff. Do you remember? Wait, we were going to do might, something might, on Sunday? On Skype. Yes. <laughs> have you really forgotten? Oh, my God. That's this Sunday? I thought it was a Sunday. I didn't know no, it was this, this Sunday. Sunday. Oh, fuck all of you guys. I had no idea it was this Sunday. <laughs> really? This Sunday? Yes. Fucking shit. No one said that. Anyway, allow me to revise this. Oh, man, that was spectacular. I I really, I was like, huh? No wonder why I was flummoxed. I didn't, okay, shit. Do we have a time? Is that like a thing? that's all in the email. No, it's not. I did not get this fucking email. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Come on. <laughs> no, wait. Yes. Hold on. All I heard was Friday, Saturday, or Sunday at 8 p.m. their time, which is midday hour time. And we both agreed that things were working on Friday and Saturday. It was I, Sunday. I thought it was. I thought it was the platonic version of Sunday. <laughs> I thought they were saying Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sundays work for me. I'm like, yes, Sundays work for me. I didn't know it was like fucking this Sunday. Fucking this Sunday? I never would have shown up, you guys. Jesus Christ! <laughs> you goddamn you, like completely <laughs> elliptical Brits. I fuck. <laughs> Un... I don't know if we should leave this in or cut this out. I'm leaving it in. Is midday here? By midday, do you mean fucking noon? Yes. Son of a bitch, that's not the same thing at all. Midday is like that stretch of day where you're it's eating a sandwich. Oh my, oh my god. god. Fucking midday. Who uses that in a phrase when they mean noon? Noon has less letters. It's a fucking palindrome. It's the same forwards and backwards. <laughs> I'm laughing so hard I have a sore head. Oh my god. Oh my god. This <laughs> this is the worst news ever. <laughs> I re- 
read these emails and it was in super it was like dog whistling i could not read it <laughs> absolutely unbelievably you guys scheduled something and were far too polite about it that i didn't even know it was happening jesus <laughs> all right well I'm really glad that I didn't do the dumbass thing of like, hey guys, so do we have a date as to when we're doing this? Because oh, that's you know, be hilarious if I like write to confirm, and they're like, no, we were just talking generic Sundays. Please do it, please God. I'm sure you're right. Like looking at this, but I totally was sure. Like, oh my God, oh my God. Should we tell everyone what we're talking about? Yes, yes, we should. What we're talking about is. Maybe, although apparently maybe not, Jeff and I are going to be recording an episode of House of Astonish with Alan Paul. Yes, maybe. <laughs> apparently there was a date and time set up. So anyway, listeners, yeah, this is probably uh, so, like you managed so to piece this together. Saying, we should do, you know, we shouldn't do two hours. We right. should do six. Right. We actually might be doing another couple of hours this week. That is absolutely true. And I, I better tell my wife pretty darn quick. <laughs> oh, Jeffrey. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's. I know what we have to do soon to like sort of sew up. Um, listeners, sorry this was shorter that than was regular. So I think that this will. Wow, that's that's my big finish. I I swear to God. <laughs> so Fucking great. midday. God damn you. Son of a bitch! That means nothing. That means nothing. Oh, I'm imagining this is what you sounded like when you realized the hard drive crashed last week. Yeah, I, I, I did. I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. Actually, that was that, uh, was, that was such a significant punch in the every, stomach. Every every single Thursday, we're just gonna have to cause you reason to lose your shit. Pretty much. Pretty much. We can because oh. that is yeah, yes. <laughs> I don't like this segue. We're talking about future Thursdays. We're not recording next Thursday or the Thursday after that, because two Thursdays from now is Thanksgiving, and next Thursday is your pretend Thanksgiving. Is yeah, is Thanksgiving. Yeah. So, um, well, we made noises about maybe recording on Wednesday. Is that something that you can do or not do? I can do. Okay, let's I, try and do that. Let, I probably won't lead it. Yeah, let's say I can do that. Things yeah. are crazy next week for reasons I will tell you when we get off the phone. But okay. I should be able to do it. Okay, listeners. We may be back next week. Check the websites and our Twitter feeds because there's a chance it may not come together. Uh, simply between, because honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'll get a chance to read a comic book between now and then either. So, um, since but since, you might be able to watch Misfits, and then we can talk more about Misfits. When I, oh, I know, I will watch it while we're all podcasting Sunday midday. <laughs> you guys can all talk, and you can listen to me chew food and be like, oh, <laughs> that'd be hilarious. And we're like Jeff. You're you're all like what? Huh? Uh, what? I'm sorry. Right? I I sorry. Sorry. This thing that Rudy did blew my fucking mind. What were we talking about? <laughs> Do we even know gentlemen. what are we supposed to talk about? I thought they no, were no. Mister Mister Alt. You guys didn't do like it's not an acrostic where I have to assemble the first, uh, you know, first and last letters of Al's email in each <laughs> sentence in order to figure out what we're talking about, right? It's like oh, Zombo. Okay, what are we talking about? I thought they, I thought these guys were organized. <laughs> What's happening? 
ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Jeff's Meltdown. <laughs> yeah, seriously, wait, what the Meltdown episode? I was so... La, da, 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 da. Oh, this, this was such a great episode because we went off the rails entirely. Like, really within the first ten minutes for once, and we didn't get back on. And we, at no point did we get back on. I, the amazing part was I don't think that we ever actually, whenever we, you tried to lay down some rails, we would sort of barrel along and then never get to the station. It would just be like, oh, and by the way... Anyway, uh, Graham, do you want to sing us out? Bye! Perfect. Perfect. <laughs>